All right, we are in chapter 28 of Genesis. Wrap it up today, God willing. Uh, well, Jacob finally got out of the house. Tent, whatever. And, uh, you know, Esau's mad. Esau's just waiting for Isaac to die so he can pummel Jacob. And uh, so Jacob had to leave town in a hurry. And uh, let's read, starting with verse 10. Maybe if somebody could read uh, verses 10 through 17. We'll take a big chunk here. 10 through 17. Seventeen also, please. And, yeah. he, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. All right. So, uh, leaving Beersheba, heading toward Haran, you know, so up to the top of the Fertile Crescent here he goes. And uh, this is further, actually, than Abraham went with Isaac. Uh, remember, that was three days' journey for an old man, his son, the servants, Pack animals. Uh, so if you had to walk that distance now, um, with the roads being as they are now in modern times, it's like 83 miles. That's a, it's a fair distance. So it's probably two, three days journey that he's had, you know, just getting, getting away from home and heading toward the next phase of his life with this kind of cloud over his head, you know? I mean, yeah, he got the birthright, he got the blessing, and he's got a vendetta from his brother, and you know, he's just going into, he doesn't even know what necessarily. He just knows that uh, his mother's got a brother and he's going to go find a wife there and see what happens. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine what's going through his mind in these days as he's traveling. But uh, two, three days journey at least, probably more, until he gets to this place called, uh, we now call it Bethel. It's now, by the way, it's a village in the West Bank. So this is yet another place that's important to Israel's history, but it's not currently directly under Israel's control. That just keeps happening. Anyway, um, but yeah, this is a, this is a Palestinian area today. Um, so it says that he, uh, you know, people say, you know, there, I should say the Bible says here, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place and if you're like me as a kid, you were thinking, I could not sleep on a stone pillow. Um, I, the, the language is a little bit more, you know, it's not, it's not quite that firm. It's more implying that 
he, he moved the stone, may have set it up next to his head, may not have actually slept on it. He may have sort of arranged it a little bit. It's kind of hard to say. I, it's, but, uh, you know, as we're going to see, this is not necessarily a very small stone coming up here. But, uh, you know, whatever's happening, he's lying on the ground. He's camping out. He's out in the middle of the elements. And, uh, you know, he, he sleeps on his way. And, and uh, here he is. And he dreams. As far as I remember, up to this point, the only person who God has spoken to in a dream so far is, I can never remember if it's Pharaoh or Abimelech. It's one of the people that Abraham was messing around with when he said, oh yeah, she's my sister, she's not my wife. You know, <laughs> that's the only person up to this point that we know of that is specifically said that God spoke to them in a dream. Dreams are going to be a lot more important as we go through Genesis, but... At this moment, this is kind of a new thing. Now, that may have been how God talked to Abraham and Isaac but, and Noah, but, you know, it just isn't very clear. Here it actually says, he went to sleep, I think not expecting this necessarily, and, uh, and he had a dream. And uh, so he dreams of a ladder. And I don't know what you're picturing here, but it's not a ladder. It's a staircase. You know, that, you know, let's just be perfectly clear. It's not, you know, there's not rungs. He's not, he doesn't see angels. You know, again, me and my child in a Sunday school mind, you know, I was always trying to picture how in the world two people could be on a ladder at the same time. And how big of a ladder is this? And how does that even work? You know, and I would draw pictures of it. And my mother would be like, why? Why is the ladder so wide? What is all the things on, you know, hanging off the side of it? I'm like, I don't, just don't know how these people would move. It's a staircase. <laughs> Maybe you didn't have these problems, but I'm, I'm just a literalist. I can't help it. I always have been. Um, so it's a, it's a wide staircase, and there's angels coming down, and there's angels going up from this place where he is right now up to heaven. Um, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Hey, where else does that phrase come up in the English Bible? Let's see here. It's in the Gospels. It's in one particular Gospel. John. Jesus is calling his disciples. What? No, no, sorry, no, no. Um, Jesus, what? Oh, yeah, that's true. He, yeah, he ascended. But specifically, the angels ascending and descending. Jesus basically quotes this thing when he tells Nathaniel, you know, Nathaniel who, you know, Nathaniel's the one who told Philip, you know, Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, the Lord beats up with Nathaniel and says, wow, boy, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, you know. And, I, and I've always wondered if this was an ironic thing to say or not, because Nathaniel immediately is like, oh, you know me. You're right. Uh, you know that, that's me. You know, uh, maybe maybe he's one of these people who just blurts out the truth all the time, and it's embarrassing. I don't know, but you know, this is like the thing everybody knows about Nathaniel. But why would this man from Nazareth know that? But he comes along and he recognizes that. He says, "How do you know me?" And Jesus says, "Well, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." This must be, I, I think this is not necessarily what's happened recently in Nathaniel's life, but this is some significant moment. It's, it's him recognizing that somebody with God's vision 
saw him, knew who he was, picked him out a long time ago. And he's amazed. And Jesus, is, Jesus tells him, it says John chapter 1, he says, you know, you think that's exciting. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. These are, it's these little moments. You know, when Jesus, you know, he, he just pulls up this random thing that's said in one place in the Old Testament and hauls it in and drops it on himself. And it's these moments when you sort of realize just how, how important both the Old Testament moment is and how important Jesus is in that time. What, are these, what, what, what do you think it means that angels are ascending and descending? What are they doing? Exercise? I don't think so. No, not exercise. This is not their version of mall walking. Right, right, yeah. Um, you know, we see angels throughout Scripture as sort of the, you know, they're the ones who, they are messengers. That's what the word actually means. Those of you in my small group will forgive me if we just cover what we just covered this week. But uh, we, um, they're messengers first and foremost. Uh, they're also pictured as being the ones who bring not just God's messages, but his blessings to the earth. And in some cases, judgment too, like, you know, Genesis 19 and Sodom. But... Uh, and moving upward, the angels are the ones who sort of bring the prayers from earth to heaven. So there's angels, but, but it's at this place, this place here, this part of the land. And this is the land, of course, that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. So Jacob's there, and he sees this, and it's happening here. And he thinks, this is an important place. This place must be important. It's, it's happening here. And... Jesus just takes all of that stuff and says, that's, that's, that's me. It's about me. I'm going to. That, that, that's where you're, you're going to see that I'm the conduit through which communication to the Father happens. Blessings are given to the world from the Father through me. Prayers ascend to the Father and can be given directly to him because of me. He's the great high priest. He's the mediator. He's the one who stands as this bridge in the gap between heaven and earth for us. And what Jacob saw was the shadow. And remember, Jacob is the one who's going to end up being called Israel. Jacob is, you know, within him is the nation of Israel. He represents them in just about every way. They all come from him. Every descendant of his lands in one of those tribes of Israel. And this is one of those moments when Jesus sort of says, yeah, I'm, and, and Israel, the promises for Israel are going to end up, you know, they, they broadened out to all of Jacob's descendants. And then in some way, they did narrow down to one man, and it's him, the son of man. You know, and then he pulls Daniel's eschatological title and says, that's me. I don't know. I just, I love that. And I, I don't know, I, I, there's a, I love everything about the way John describes the calling of the apostles. I'll, I'll not follow that bunny trail further. But uh, it's interesting to me that he pulls this in and refers that to himself. And he sees the Lord standing above the staircase. I don't know if Jacob saw anything that was really anthropomorphic. It, it, there's no real indication from the passage whether he saw something that looked like a man or if he just recognized that it was God's glory. Um, the word stand there isn't really stand as opposed to sit. 
it's more stand as in it appeared in a fixed place. So whatever it means, whatever he saw, he knew it was Yahweh. And as, when God speaks to him, what does God say? Well, he repeats the land promise. So God, as he did, as he, as he ratified the promise over and over again to Abraham and then to Isaac, this is where, for the first time, I think Jacob gets the certainty that, yes, this does belong to me. Oh, yeah, I tricked Esau out of his birthright. Well, tricked him. I mean, again, who gives that away? But, yeah, I saw the value in that thing that he didn't, and I took it from him. And then Isaac, on his deathbed, which wasn't exactly a deathbed, but who knew, um, was going to give the one blessing that encompassed everything about all of the promises to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham and his descendants forever. And I took that too. And then I had to leave. And Jacob, you know, I mean, Isaac never had to run for his life. Abraham, as far as we can tell, never ran for his life. How do you think Jacob feels? He's like, you know, the first one in this line you know, they claim that he just walked off with everything. Every spiritual blessing of Abraham belongs to him. And he's running away like, you know, like he's the culprit. Well, he kind of is. And I don't know, this is a great moment for him because this is when God says, basically, yeah, it's you. It is yours. I'm telling you everything I told Abraham and everything I told Isaac. The land around you is going to be yours and your descendants. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through your offspring. Uh, you know, how do you think Jacob felt the next day compared to the day before? You know, he gets there, he's like, I can't believe I'm going to sleep on a rock. <laughs> you know, I'm going, I don't know where. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how hard it is to follow the caravan roads in ancient times, but, you know, he, he may not even know exactly where Haran is. He may have to ask all the time. I don't even know. But, you know, he's running with his tail between his legs, and all of a sudden, God appears to him in a dream and says, no, this is all yours. You are the son of Abraham and the son of Isaac in a way that nobody else is. It, oh, man, I mean, how do you think he felt the next day? How, how do you think things changed for him in this moment? And he promises to return him to this land. Isaac, remember, never left the land. Jacob, the very first thing he has to do, as soon as he gets the blessing, is get out. <laughs> He's off into exile. Uh, there's a pattern here, because Israel sometimes has to go into exile. And it's Israel's fault, as often as not. But God is compassionate and merciful and gracious, and he keeps his promises, and he says, exile's not forever. I'll bring you back. And he says he's going to bring him back. And he promises he will not leave Jacob until the promises are fulfilled. I mean, I don't know. This is, this is so great. So, yeah, I mean, J Jacob, awake, he wakes up and he's like, you know, yeah, he, you know, he's looking around thinking, I had no idea that Yahweh's presence was here in any special way. Now, again, remember, up to this point, we don't even know what Jacob really believed about God. It's all been very sort of, you know, we, we, 
Jacob doesn't talk much about the Lord up to this point. After this, you know, we know. But up to this point, we haven't known. And so he calls this place, it's near the town of Luz, he calls this place the house of God, Bethel. Bethel. And uh, he says it's the house of God and the gate of heaven. It's a holy place to God. It's an appropriate place to worship him. And he knows that someday he will worship God here. I mean, formally and appropriately worship God, altar, sacrifice, prayer, everything that you associate with that worship. It's going to happen at this place. You know, people, you know, you'll notice that people don't just declare a place to be holy. Not, you know, people of God in scripture, they don't just say, you know what, this looks like a good place. We're going to say, let's, let's, let's worship here. This looks like a nice place to set up an altar. It's perfect, really. You know, there's, there's lots of room. There's a place to wash up. We can, you know, there's stones. We can build an altar. It's perfect. It's not up to the people. It's, uh, I don't know, God reveals to people where he wants to be worshipped. It's sort of a, the hint of, of an idea, and I'm not super hardcore on this, but I believe it exists, called the regulative principle in our theology, which is that God will tell you how he wants to be worshipped. Exactly how he wants to be worshipped. There, you know, there are things that are appropriate to worship and things that are inappropriate to worship, and God will tell you what he wants, and he has in his word. And I don't know, there's just sort of a hint of that. Uh, if somebody could read verses 18 through 22. So he takes that rock that was on, he was on it, or he was near it, or whatever. He stands it up. I have no idea if Jacob had a pack animal at this point, and I don't know how hard it was to stand that rock up. You know, he may be a man of tents, but, you know, we're going to see in this chapter and the next one, he's, you know, he, 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 is, he does not lack strength. You know, you know, Jacob can be a manly man at times, and he picks up the rock, and he sets it up, and he, uh, pours oil on the rock. That marks it as being holy in a special place. And he formally names the place. Now, that doesn't mean that he goes to the next town over and says, what do you guys call this place? Well, stop calling it that. This isn't, this isn't was. I called it Bethel. Start calling it Bethel. No, 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 no. He's sort of marking this on his own mental map. His descendants are going to call this Bethel. When his descendants get the rewards, when they reap the promises of God, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they come back and they take possession of this place. It's going to, this is the house of God, Bethel. So, um, it's for the sake of the descendants he doesn't have yet, which again tells you, Jacob's a man of faith. He believes in the things that aren't seen. He's looking to the future. This has marked the difference between him and Esau this whole time. He knew the birthright was important. It was worth it 
what he did. It may have been wrong, but it was worth it. And Esau didn't think it was worth it, or he would have held on to it more tightly. Jacob is, again, marking himself as a man of faith. And then we get to his vow. This, I, 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 I can't wait to hear what maybe you all think about this, because it's an interesting vow, isn't it? What's interesting about this vow? It's conditional. Exactly. That's the number one point. You're like, you know, you're like, is he allowed to do that? Can a man go to God and say, okay, if you do this and this and this, then, uh, yeah, you'll be my God. I'll worship you. Are you, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> what? Now, granted, God lets the patriarchs get away with a lot of things we don't get to get away with today. So, you know, you can kind of start from there. But first of all, I want to assure you, this is not some language trick. You know, you always hear about, oh, in the Greek, that's not really this kind of thing. It's that kind of a thing. It doesn't mean if. It means it's going to happen and stuff like that. This is not one of those things. This is, not, this is definitely really conditional. Jacob meant, you do this and I'll do that. It really is dependent on God providing something first. So no questions about that. He's saying, Yahweh, you prove yourself to be truthful in your promises. And he tells, he repeats back exactly, you know, the importance of the promises that he's chosen here. You know, he's like, uh, you know, he repeats the promise that God made to be with him, to keep him. And he goes further. He even says, and you'll give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, and I'll come back to my father's house in peace. And that's got to really be weighing on him, right? I mean, again, he's running. He's on the run. Esau's going to kill him. He wants to know that when this is over, when he comes back, because God said he'd come back. So when he comes back, he wants to come back in peace. He doesn't want to come back to a fight. He doesn't want to come back to, to this huge enmity. You know, again, he's a man of tents. He doesn't, he doesn't like the idea of fighting. You know, Esau, Esau would be like, you know, Esau wouldn't even, if Esau were in this spot, he wouldn't even think to ask for that. He'd almost be saying, and Lord, you know, let him, let him be ready to fight when I get back. You know, <laughs> you know, Esau's the kind of guy who's just like, yeah, set this thing up. This is going to be, this is going to be a cage match for the centuries, you know. And the, Jake, that's not Jacob. He, he doesn't thrive in the wanderer. Jacob never thrives as an exile. Again, much like his people, much like the descendants of, of Jacob. <sighs> but he says, if Yahweh does all of that, then Yahweh will be Jacob's God, which is where you kind of get the feeling that maybe this is the moment where Jacob says, you know what, I think I've decided. <laughs> I think I've seen the truth here. I, I don't know, it may have been coming up to this point. It may have already happened. You know, there's no clear indication, but this might be the moment where he says, if you're going to do all of this, then yeah, you will be the only God for me. Um, and I'll worship you in this place. And he goes on even to promise that he's going to give the Lord an appropriate amount of tribute in the ancient, in the ancient world permanently of everything that God gives to him. It's a tie, that it's common. Uh, you know, vassals often would, 10% is about the going rate for, you know, if somebody conquers you and then says, but you can, you can live, you can work the land, you can, in fact, you can even self-govern, just 
I just get the first 10%, right? You know, I, I skim that off the top, and then we're good. That's, that's normal for the ancient Near East, and that's how Jacob kind of sees this. He's like, all right, let's say you've conquered me, but you let me live in this land. You give me these blessings, then I will be, you know, you'll be, you'll be my liege, and I'll be your vassal, and I will give you this tribute forever. So it's appropriate. But, okay, so, but is it okay, really, that Jacob is doing this conditionally? You know, these patriarchs, they get away with murder sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> just literally. And, uh, you know, especially you know, all the Old Testament people, you're just sort of like, I can't, I can't believe you let him do that, Lord. You know? Later on, Jacob's going to wrestle with God. Well, yeah, I know, right. Yeah. Yeah, and he's going to, yeah, I mean, he's going to, how do you, how do you explain that he's going to hold on to him so tightly? He's like, yeah, I'm not letting, I got to go. You know, the Lord's like, I got to get out of here. The sun's coming up, and Jacob's like, yeah, not before you bless me. <laughs> I cannot wait for that chapter. But anyway, um, we're told not to test God, right? Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus quotes it in Matthew, to the devil. <laughs> he says, you should not tempt the Lord God, you know. Acts 5.9, what's the real problem with what Ananias and Sapphira did? They tested the spirit. They, that's, what, that's what the apostles say. You know, this, I think when they're told not to test God in Deuteronomy, and this, you know, as this goes forward in Scripture, what that means is don't disobey God and see if he really will bring the consequences. That's a bad way to test God. Don't do it. Yes? Well, I was just going to get to that. Yeah, because there is a flip side to this, isn't there? Yeah, we are invited to test God in some places. Um, you know, I'll pick on one we had a few years back, Isaiah 7. You know, God tells Ahaz, so what sign do you want? And Ahaz, who is a wicked king, says, Oh, I would never dream of testing the Lord. You know, and the Lord's like, you know, well, this will be the sign. You know, a, a virgin's going to conceive and bear a child, and we'll call his name Emmanuel. <laughs> I mean, how dare you? You know, I mean, the Lord, if, if I tell you to test me, then test me. You know, don't, don't pretend like that's okay. Malachi 3.10 is one of the classic uh, cases of this. You know, the Israelites, they come back from the Babylonian exile. They built a temple, but they haven't been keeping the priests up. They haven't been keeping the services up. They're not doing their Torah-given job, sending, you know, the money and the offerings and everything to the temple. And God tells them, you know, hey, you bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. And he even says, test me in this. If you're worried that you're not going to have enough because you're giving too much to me, try me. See if I don't open up, open up the windows of heaven and just pour out blessings on you. Wow. You know, I, I think we should be careful before we take that verse and say, oh, yeah, that's my life. You know, baby, that, that's a promise for me. You know, recognize the context, okay? You know, this is not name it and claim it. This is not, you know, you know, you give to the guy on TV, and 
God will bless you. Hallelujah. You know, you know, you got to be careful about this stuff. But God, you know, I don't think as somebody I used to work for said all the time, you can't outgive God. It's fun to try. <laughs> you know, you know, there's not, you know, see, you know, try it. Get crazy sometime. We've got extra money. Hey, instead of blowing it, instead of saving it, instead of worrying about it, what if we, what if we gave it to the Lord? Yeah, but we might need it. Well, let's see. Find out. Try him. You can test him in that way. Psalm 34.8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that a test? He's like, try me. So, apparently, if we test him by trusting him, by having faith in him and obeying him out of that faith, that glorifies that's a good thing. So there's a good testing and a bad testing. Good testing is you obey him and you have faith in him and you trust him. And bad testing is you disobey him and see if he really pounds you for it at some point. Don't do that. <laughs> okay? Don't test the Lord by disobeying him. Test him by obeying him and see what's going to happen. So I think, I think Jacob is saying basically... All right, you know, I mean, granted, he made it conditional like, God, you have to do this first. But the fact is, Jacob is going to have a lot of opportunities here to do the wrong thing. And he's not going to take many of them. <laughs> Jacob's going to be a good guy coming, you know, going forward in, this, in these passages. He's going to show himself to be what he is deep down. Somebody who has faith. A man of faith. What, what, he, what we saw glimmers of, again, from the beginning of Jacob's story. That's how he tests him. And, you know, the whole rest of Genesis is God delivering on that promise. I mean, Jacob doesn't die till the end of Genesis. So this is, you know, the whole rest of the book is how this vow, this conditional vow, plays out. Everything we're going to cover to the end of Genesis, whenever God decides that's going to be, sorry, <laughs> is... Is that so? Anyway, yeah. Be careful. Fear the Lord. Don't think you can just make any old conditional vow you want. But it's okay to test the Lord if you're testing Him by saying, "What if I have more faith in You? What if I trust You more? What if I'm more obedient, even though my common sense keeps telling me I'm going to get into trouble?" You know, there's always things. You know, I've had people say to me, and I thought at times even, you know, I can't get out of this situation I'm in without sinning against somebody. I, you know, yeah, sin got me into this mess, and I recognize that, and I repent, and I'm sorry, but here I am, and I will hurt somebody getting out one way or the other. I'm, and, and, you know, I don't have a choice except to lie to one person or steal from one person or whatever. No, that's not true then. I don't think that's ever true. You can always, I mean, at great personal cost, yes, but you can always choose to trust God. You know, you can always be David at the last minute at the altar, or not at the altar, but at the threshing floor of Hornan, saying, you know, you know, the aftermath of, you know, when God said, how do you want, I'm going to punish you, how do you want me to do it? I could, I could turn you over to the nations and have them pummel you. 
He's like, or I could just directly visit something upon your people. And God said, well, if I'm going to put my trust somewhere, David said, if I'm going to put my trust somewhere, it's going to be on you. It's the first right move David ever made. Tough on the people, perhaps, but it was the best thing he could have done. Because God ended up having mercy. You never know about other people. So, yeah, test the Lord by being obedient, even when it hurts, even when you're going to look like an idiot and a fool and do stupid things. See what happened. What's the worst that can happen? You have every heavenly blessing in spiritual places in Christ. What's the worst thing that can happen? How will he not with him freely give us all things? What's the worst that can happen? I'm so animated about this because I'm telling myself this right now. If you haven't figured that out, like I said, I had a bad week, and I need to hear this. I really needed this today, and I hope at some point you all can use it as well. Any quick last things before we close up? Yeah, I think there, there is sort of a contractual thing about that. It's just kind of weird that Jacob is the one defining all the terms. You know, it's not, it's not usually the human that says to God, okay, this is how it's going to be.